Open back up to John 6, everyone. This morning we're going to talk about eating and living forever from John 6. This is going to be our last message from the section that's called the, the Bread of Life Discourse, where Jesus is talking about himself as the bread of life. But before we get into the passage this morning, I want to ask, how many, how many carefree moments do you suppose you have on, on a given day? How many carefree moments? You know, the idea of being carefree, just nothing burdening you, nothing weighing you down, carefree, just enjoying, just at peace. I mean, how many of those moments versus the other kind that we experience in terms of being filled with cares, filled with concerns? There's a whole spectrum in terms of how we're wired and what our particular tendencies are. There's a whole spectrum in how we experience being either carefree or the opposite of carefree, filled with care. There's a whole spectrum there, and we all fall somewhere on that spectrum. And in terms of our day-to-day experience, that varies. It fluctuates up and down, doesn't it? And whatever kinds of cares we have, and however many cares we have, There's something common to all of them. There's a common denominator beneath every one of our cares. And it is this. This is the singular fact that underlies all of our cares in life. It's the fact that you will die and that I will die. You know that every care, every concern, every little experience of anxiety or fear is related to the fact, the fact that we will die. There's the obvious one, so we, we find ourselves feeling unwell in some way, and we, we have to go see a doctor because something's not quite right, or we find a, a lump on our body somewhere that we know is unusual, and so we, we start to feel a sense of care regarding that, and we know the obvious connection. The fear is, well, if this is something serious, then I could die. So there's obvious examples like that, obvious examples like maybe you're going to be traveling, driving on the roads, or flying in a plane, and you're, you're fearful because you know you could, you could die. But then there are the less obvious versions, maybe being care, uh, filled with care, as I say careful, but filled with care concerning maybe uh, a test grade or something like that, about an exam that's coming up. And you might think, well, how, how does that have to do with, with death? But it does because it, it, it's a pointer, it's a little omen of the fact that some point will be shown to be completely and utterly inadequate, will be completely and utterly just wasting away, we'll die, we'll lose everything, even our mental capacity will be lost at some point. There's all different types of examples of things, even things that we wouldn't necessarily tie to our inevitable death, but they are. Losing a job. Concerns about inflation. We know that resources are limited. And, and, and that knowledge that resources are limited, it's a reminder itself. It's a reminder that at some point we run out of everything and, and we ourselves run out. We, we will die. And it's interesting that all throughout the Bible, God invites us to consider this. Now, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be helpful nor healthy to be preoccupied every single moment with death. It wouldn't be a healthy way to live, for sure, okay? But the Bible does invite us over and over again throughout its pages to contemplate, to consider our death, the inevitability of our death, our mortality. It invites us to consider it, not to increase the burden on us, but in fact to lessen the burden on us to relieve the burden on us. And this passage in John 6 is one of the texts 
that does that very thing. It relieves that burden. It ministers comfort and grace to us in this area of our need. Let's read it again. David read it earlier, but if you would read it again with me, just to get it in our minds, verses 48 through 58, and then we'll walk through and make some observations, and we'll see that Jesus really emphasizes the hope that we have for our inevitable death. He says in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats of this bread will live forever. I want to emphasize one of the statements in this text that occurred earlier in this chapter as well, and it's where he says, I will raise him up on the last day, there in verse 40, uh, 54. In verse 54, And let me show you how he said that earlier a few times, three different times before this. In verse 39 he said, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Then again in verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. And jump ahead to verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see how over and over again, in this discussion of Him being the bread of life, He is emphasizing, among the other things that we've talked about in previous weeks, he's also emphasizing here the idea of everlasting life, resurrection life. I will raise you up on the last day, he says, for those who eat this bread. There's that promise of resurrection life. And he contrasts it with the earthly condition of our mortality and our fragility. And I want you to notice that first. That's the first observation we're going to make is that he talks about eating and dying, first of all. Eating in terms of natural eating in our bodies and then the dying that goes along with that. Look at verse 49. He says there, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Begin at verse 58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. So there's a kind of eating that takes place in this world commonly that's still correlated with death. We've talked about this a bit already, but in this chapter, uh, Jesus has already fed the thousands. This is, it's known as the feeding of the 5,000, but he fed as many as 25,000 people. A huge audience of people were hungry, and he fed them. Well, in that context, he also has been referred back to by the crowd. They referred him back to the experience of their ancestors there in the wilderness in the book of Exodus when they were hungry, and God supernaturally fed them with manna from heaven. But here he's emphasizing the fact that whether they ate back then or you crowds, you eat today this bread that I made, the bread and the fish, there's still, you're still going to die. And he said, the fathers, they ate that manna and they died. It was temporal. It met a need for the moment, but it was still 
not lasting in terms of its effect, they still would die. And there's something very different about what he's saying about himself as the bread of life. There's a, there's a qualitative difference here. This is bread that you eat and you never die, he says. But notice this as well. Notice how he says not only did they eat this bread and they died, and of course, again, the crowd there that he was ministering to, they ate and they still would die. Notice what he says about the fact that there's no life in them. Look at verse 53. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. You're not independent. You can't live without substances from outside of you. And spiritually speaking, you can't live without your creator God, without him, without Christ. You can't live. There are countless reminders of this. The fact that they needed that food or their bodies would literally starve and die, that's a reminder. There's reminders in terms of the the world that we all live in. He mentions that he gives himself as life for the world. He says that in our passage this morning. And the idea is not only are your bodies dying, but everything in the world is dying. Everything is dying. Everyone is dying. Everything is wasting away. Everyone is wasting away. He tells us the truth. That's the way that it is. Turn back to Genesis 5 with me for a moment. Genesis 5, and to prepare you for this, let me just give the prior context. This as a reminder, you know this, but Genesis, of course, records the creation of, of the world and all things. And when you read the creation account, you notice that it is literally like bursting with life as you read about all the things that God has made, whether humans or all the different creatures, the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and the creeping things. And there's all this language that speaks of movement and multiplication and fruitfulness. There's all this life going on there in the Genesis account of creation. It's bursting with life. And then, of course, in chapter 3, rebellion takes place. Adam and Eve sin against their God, and, and the world is cursed. And then from that point on, we see this all throughout Scripture, this idea of death. And chapter 5 of Genesis makes the point profoundly because it's this genealogy. And I want you just to notice just a few observations here in Genesis 5 to drive this home. Begin in verse 5. The genealogy begins with Adam, the first man. It says, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, which is a long time. But it says, and he died. See that? And then jump ahead to verse 8. So all the days of Seth were 912 years. Again, it's a long time, relatively speaking. And he died. Verse 11, so all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Verse 14, so all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. And if you keep reading throughout chapter 5 over and over and over again, you read these words, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. The Bible is honest with us about our condition individually and the condition of our world. It's a world plagued by death. Yes, there is life. Simultaneously, there's life and there's multiplication and there's flourishing, but always limited, always temporal. In the end game, in the final analysis, death sort of wins in this world. And we all have reminders of that from the aches and pains we live with, the the, um, sicknesses we get, the diseases we get. 
Those are the obvious examples that, like we said earlier, the fact that we need to eat, we need something from outside of us. We have to take in calories and sugars and proteins and things. We need them or we will waste away and die. There are those types of examples. And then there are more just mundane things in life. Just right now, most of you have a, a, cell, a smartphone, a cell phone, it's kind of in your pocket. And the little battery has the meter on there. And as the day goes on, that goes down. It's dying, isn't it? And you've got to recharge it. And your computer battery, the same thing. And your car, you've got to fill it up with gas. And then that runs out. You've got to fill it up with gas again. And your refrigerator at home is filled with food. And then if you have a lot of kids like me and like the Clark family, that food is gone pretty quickly. It's empty again. Then you've got to fill it up again. And it's empty again. And you fill it up again. And it's empty again. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Everything is limited. Everything is running down and running out. Everything. God has given us plenty of indicators, plenty of evidences of this reality of life and how limited it all is. In this very moment, your body is, is wearing out in terms of you're going to need to eat at some point. Hopefully, if we let you out before you know, too long, you'll be able to eat <laughs> at some point soon. But you're, you, know, you might be even be beginning to feel that. Or, or fatigue, maybe you're tired and you're going to need to sleep at night. Because your body is limited, right? Okay, so with that observation back in John 6, I want to go back through, and we, we went through this passage weeks ago when we had communion together, and I talked a lot about the idea of eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood because of how it fits with communion. So we're going to emphasize this morning as we go back to the remainder of the passage here, This idea of immortality, this idea of resurrection life, which he is so strongly emphasizing here. So we talked about eating and dying. Let's talk about eating and living forever now. And observe with me that, first of all, in verses 50 and 51, Jesus says that he came from heaven. And that's important because everything we just talked about, we said this this earth, this world is a world filled with death. And if there is to be hope, it has to come from somewhere else. Or someone else. It can't come from a mortal being who himself or herself is dying, right? It has to come from somewhere else. And the passage tells us, Jesus here says, I came out of heaven. See how he repeats that in both verse 50 and 51? This is the bread which comes down out of heaven. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. Life must come to us from God. It must come to us from heaven. It doesn't come from here. From the realm of life, presence of God, to the realm of death where we live. Notice next that Jesus is bread to be eaten. And as we said, we said a lot about this a few weeks ago. So I'll be brief here, but just to to remind you that uh, he says you must eat my flesh, drink my blood. It's this idea of, um, it's not prescribing cannibalism. It's interesting, in the first century the early church was accused of being cannibals because of what people around them had heard about their practice of communion, the Lord's Supper, and taking in and the idea of eating Christ's flesh. It was very strange to them, and we admitted that's a little bit of an odd concept. But he's not talking about literal eating. He's talking about figurative eating. He's talking about eating in the sense that just as we need food and depend upon food or our bodies will die, he's saying, Jesus is saying, you need me. You need to take me in. You need to depend upon me. You need me to nourish your soul. 
That's the point he was making. And so he said, I think the title of the message that week was Eating is Believing. There's a sense in which this metaphor of eating is a picture of what it means to believe, is taking in and saying, I will die, Jesus, without you. I need you. Notice next what is said here about Jesus sharing the life of the Father. So, so he, um, he makes that point and Actually, let me, just, let me just read those verses, then we'll, we'll catch up to where we're going to be in verse 57. But just notice again what he says. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Which, again, sounded very odd to them and offensive to them. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So there's that idea, again, of just taking him in, living off of his flesh and his blood, spiritually speaking. And now notice this idea of Jesus sharing with us the very life of God in verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will also live because of me. Here's the idea. God himself has life inherent to himself. And for all eternity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have shared that life together. Unlike us and unlike everything in this world, there are no limitations with God. God's battery is not running out of energy. Okay? He's, he's not becoming hungry or thirsty. He doesn't experience that need like we do. He's completely self-sufficient. And Christ is describing that self-sufficiency here, that life of God here, that limitless life of God. There's a great illustration of this in this, this book that I really like called Delighting in the Trinity. He says some things about this that are really helpful. But he begins with, and I want to just share with you what he, sa- he starts with, and this is... Um, a unique resource in that so many theologians and scholars have written about the Trinity in ways that are very cerebral, okay, very heady and kind of hard to understand sometimes because it is a challenging concept that God can be both three and one at the same time. It's admittedly challenging. Well, this author named Michael Reeves, uh, he writes about the topic in a way that helps us to see the beauty and glory of the Trinity in terms of God being a relational being and what God is like. And one of the ways that he does that extremely impactfully is he contrasts the true God with the false notions of gods of the past, the ancient Babylonians and the ancient Greeks. And he contrasts, and one of the contrast points is this, the gods that are fabrications of human minds and demonic influences, those gods tend to be gods who take. And he gives a couple examples of that. Not gods who give, but gods who take. And one is the name uh, Marduk, which was part of the Babylonian uh, understanding of, of the gods. There was a god named Marduk, and he was considered to be the creator. And it says this, he will create humankind so, they, so that the gods can have slaves. That way the gods can sit back, listen to this, and live off the labor of their human workforce. That's what the false gods were like. Concoctions of human minds, concoctions of demonic influences. The way they were characterized was they were very selfish and greedy. And even their, under, even their notion of creation was just so they could take from people and sort of suck the life out of people for their own benefit. Do you notice a contrast here already? He talks later in the book about another god, Artemis. 
who is dependent upon the the service of her worshipers. And he says this, this is fascinating. Listen to what he says. The tragedy is that so many think that the living God is somehow devilish, as if he created us simply to get, to demand, to take from us. God could hardly be starker. The first, that is the false gods, they are empty and hungry and grasping and envious. But the second, the true God, is super abundant, generous, radiant, and self-giving. And thus the triune God can and does create The very creation itself is a work of grace flowing from God's love. He gives life and being as a free gift for his very being and his very goodness. He says is like yeast spreading out that there might be more and more that is truly good. You, You see the idea of a God who is moving outward from himself, giving generously, giving life to all things. That is God's nature. That is God's activity. One more section from the book, actually from earlier in the book. Just thought this was helpful, so sharing it with you. In terms of this idea of Jesus saying, hey, look, the Father lives and I live and we share our life together and we give our life to the world, a dying world and dying people, including you and including me, who so desperately need his life. He goes on and he says this. The God who is love is the Father who sends his Son. To be the Father means to love, to give out life, to beget the Son Before anything else, for all eternity, God was loving, sharing life with, and delighting in his Son. He is like a fountain, ever bursting out with life and love. As it says in Jeremiah 2.13, he is a spring of living water. And just as a fountain, to be a fountain, must pour forth water, so the Father, to be Father, must give out life. That is who he is. This is his most fundamental identity. Love is not something the Father merely has or merely one of his moods. Rather, as the Bible tells us, he is love. That's who our God is. His life within himself. And from the very beginning, from from the moment he created the world and created creatures, including people like us, he's been giving of himself, offering generously, spreading, multiplying life the kind of God we have, contrary to the notions of a greedy, taking, devilish God who's a tyrant, not accurate at all. The Bible paints a picture of a God who is filled with mercy and grace and love, and even the wrath of God is a response to the rejection of man to that amazing love and grace and mercy, and God's turning people over to their own devices, to their own deadness. Jesus shares the life of the Father. Finally, I just want us to note here in verse 58, where he says, This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, but he who eats this bread will live forever. So to to know this generous, gracious, life-giving God is to be alive. That is what it means to be born again, to be born anew, to be made quickened to life by God, made alive by God, back in union with our Maker. And to know our maker, to be united with our maker, is to be united with life. And that is a spiritual reality that transcends and is far deeper and far more impactful than just the natural, fleeting, temporal world. 
It's the greatest possible reality that, that, that causes us, by God's amazing grace, to share in God's very immortality. So that while we had a beginning, God says, in Christ we will have no end. Is that amazing? I mean, think about that. In the fatigue of your body, in the hunger of your body, every bite is a reminder of your limitations and your mortality. And the God who says to you, because I live, you will live also. And that is an amazing hope, a hope that we so desperately need. I was with uh, some folks yesterday. Maybe some of you heard about what happened in Johnston uh, last week. I believe it was last week. There was a murder that took place. And I was with some people who were related to what took place there. And, and I was in that moment. I mean, it's so easy just to see things on the news and to hear a story. But in that moment, you're just immersed in the pain and the suffering of a family and a community. Very aware in those moments of how much we need to hear words like this. We need to hear Jesus say, I will raise you up on the last day. Death could not keep Jesus down. If it weren't for him, oh yeah, it could absolutely keep us down. But because of him and because he says, you belong to me and I am in you and I am with you and I will be with you forever, you know you too get to share in his immortality. That though you die, you will live again. You will rise again. Because he says, I will raise you up on the last day. He said over and over and over again. The tragedy here is that so many people in this audience rejected him. And said, nope, I don't want it that way. I want to do it my way. But for Peter and the rest of us who say, remember Jesus said, are you going to go away too, Peter? And he says, where, where would I go? Where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We need him. I began the message talking about being filled with cares. And we can all relate, right? Whether you're uh, a worry wart, and I, you know, I can be, uh, I'm not proud of it, but that's one of my difficulties is struggling with anxiety in lots of ways. Whether you're on that side of the spectrum, the worry wart type, the scaredy cat type, or the other side, we just tend to be kind of carefree. Of course, we have our names for them too, right? We call them clueless and delusional and out of touch with reality. That's what I like to call those people. So if you're one of those people who are closer to that end of the spectrum, good for you. Uh, but either way, either way, we all have our cares and concerns and struggles. Uh, we hear songs. I, I Recently, I don't know if it was on the radio, somewhere I heard this song. It's probably old. I don't even remember it. But, uh, don't worry about a thing, because every little thing is going to be all right. You know that song? And I, I like songs like that. I can't relate to them at all, but I like them. They're upbeat and peppy, and they, they're fun. Uh, but, like, but, but the part of me, like the overthinker part of me, starts to analyze it. Wait a minute. Don't worry about a thing. Every little thing's going to be all right. Or remember the Don't Worry, Be Happy? Remember that one from back in the 80s or something? And there's that point is, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's no, you're not giving us any base, any grounding for that. You're just sort of saying, hey, just don't, just sort of good feelings. And, and we know that there's, there's, there's no substance to it. Like there's no grounding for it. It's just words and sounds. And yeah, they're nice, but there's, I mean, I need some stuff. I need some substance. A few years ago, a well-known pastor, author, was asked, in light of all the hard things following COVID, riots, political battles and upheaval, uh, the war in Ukraine, he was asked this question, what would you say to a young person who is filled with fear of the future? And this is what he said. I want you to hear what he said. 
He said if Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, if he really got up, if he really walked out and was seen by hundreds of people and talked to them, if he was raised from the dead, I would say to them, everything's going to be all right. Whatever you're worried about, whatever you're afraid of, everything's going to be okay. That pastor, that author, is named Timothy Keller. Some of you have heard of him. I've mentioned him before. I think Pastor Rob has cited a few of his books before. You may or may not know he passed away a few weeks ago himself. Now fully aware, aware of just how truthful that statement was. Home in the presence with his Savior. In his message to those young people at that time, and his message to us today, and if he were here, he would say it with more exuberance and excitement than ever before, everything's going to be okay. Because Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. Because Jesus said, I will raise you up on the last day. So whatever it is, whatever is um, concerning you, whatever you're worried about, whatever you're fearing, whatever blinders there are to God's kindness in your life and his provisions in your life, whatever is just tripping you up, could be, uh, could be a health issue, could be a financial matter where you're concerned about, again, the inflation and where things are going, could be you're worried about the country, could be you're worried about international affairs, could be you're worried about something small, could be your, your kids are away for the weekend and you're worried about them, it could be, could be anything big, small, whatever. I hope you can hear this morning what Jesus said to this audience thousands of years ago and what he says to us today, which is, you belong to me, I will raise you up on the last day. Therefore, you have hope. You have the substance you need. You have the evidence you need. He was seen by hundreds of witnesses, and, and, the, and the apostles went on to many of them die and be martyred for what they knew to be not a lie, but the truth that he really did rise from the dead. And so there is hope for you and for me and our dying bodies, and there is hope for this dying world. In fact, even the world itself will be made new, a new heaven and a new earth one day. Because of the kindness of our loving and life-giving God. I hope that ministers to you right where you're at this morning. Thank you for your time and attention. Let's close in prayer and we'll have uh, the worship team come back. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its objective truth. There's so many feelings that we have. Ups and downs throughout our days, throughout our weeks. In this world, so many cares that are tied to the fact that we know that in the end we cannot secure ourselves, that we can't keep everything, and we certainly can't keep our mortality. We are limited. We're fragile creatures. You've surrounded us with reminders of that reality all around us that every day we experience pointers to awaken us to our utter need for you, our need for your life, our need for your resurrection. And as you awaken us to that need, you open our eyes to see Jesus and his amazing provisions, your son who came in the flesh, who lived in this rough and tumble world, who laid his life down, who sacrificed himself, who himself went on to die, who experienced death, the dying of his body, 
And then three days later rose again. And he's given us everything we need to know. You've revealed it to us through him. We know that on the last day we too will rise again because of all that he has done for us. We trust in him. We put our faith in him. We know that there's, not, there's no life in ourselves, God. But you're the source of life. So we trust in you. We thank you for your great gift. And the words, Lord, are just not adequate. But we praise you and celebrate your kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.